Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks, two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 318 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Dietrich. Hi, everybody. And Jeremy Green. Hello. And I'm Reuven Lerner, and we are going to speak to you this week about contracts, everyone's favorite scintillating, exciting topic. <laughs> so, look, I'll, I'll tell you, like, when I started off, I basically did not have contracts with any of my clients. Like, it was all handshake, it was all nice, we all knew each other, and that was mostly fine. But over the years, I have definitely been screwed on a number of occasions, and that has led me to use contracts. Um, and there's a whole universe of, obviously there's like lawyer stuff, whole universe of terminology and ways of going about doing contracts, and when you, I would say, do and don't need them. So we're going to try to cover a whole lot of this today. And I'm going to put in everyone's favorite caveat, which is we are not lawyers. So before suing us for following our advice and then <laughs> losing everything in the process, um, <laughs> you might want to consult with someone who actually knows what they're talking about as opposed to just us. There we go. Why are you listening to the rest of the podcast given that caveat? I don't know, but we'll we'll do our best to give some at least <laughs> useful advice. We should send out a contract to all the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> um so so let let me start off first by just like trying to put some terminology in place that I was not at all familiar with until a good number of years into my um like my actual consulting work. One is MSA, like a master service agreement. I'm sure we're going to come back to this quite a bit. And that's like, if you have, and, and guys, correct me if I'm wrong or missing something, like if you're going to have a lot of work with a particular client, that's not unusual to sign an MSA with them. And then that's like the overall structure for everything. Like, you know, who owns the rights and the timing of payment and, uh, I don't know, insurance. Uh, I definitely want to talk about that later and all sorts of other stuff. Um, but it doesn't describe any particular project. And then you've got the individual, I don't know, what would it be, a work agreement, work order? What it's would you call that? It's often a statement of work. Or a, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think those are generally the pair I've seen the most, master services and statement of work. Right, 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 right. And so, I mean, really, when I started off, I would just have, like, one, one little contract. And I still try to keep it with one little contract at most. But um, just recently, I was starting to talk to a, a large company, and they sort of came to me with their master service agreement. And then each individual well, course I'm going to give them is a statement of work. So if you're unfamiliar with these terms, now you're not. Um, so do you guys use these? Do you guys have your own? Do you, how, how, how do you work on with this? 
Actually, so you know what? For me, you know what? Um, let's, let's, let's even step back for a moment. Do you use contracts? Let's even ask like a super basic question. Uh, I do sparingly, and I almost never initiate it because um, I kind of prefer to avoid that. Usually, if I'm dealing with enterprise clients or something like that, they have their own anyway. So what happens is, and, and they might even propose a master services agreement. What typically happens is. Even if you come to them with one, they say, no, no, you know, we have our own way of dealing with vendors. So you're kind of playing defense there and you're either marking up yourself, um, the MSA and statement of works, or you're having your lawyer do it. So for those large clients, it's almost irrelevant or it has been historically for me. For smaller clients that aren't formal that way, um, they will sign something if you present it to them. But I've just always tried to structure things based on a lot of trust. So I wouldn't get myself into a situation where I were trying to use that agreement to somehow sue them in small claims court for non-payment or something like that. Usually, if anything like that would have happened, I would just write it off because I trust the clients. So there's no real great motivator for me to supply contracts. Um, so that's kind of a long way of saying I do use them when necessary, but I try to avoid it. Jeremy, how about you? Uh, yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat as Eric. Like I've, I've used them in the past and have done both master services, master service agreements and statements of work. Uh, and you know, in, and I think a lot like you, Reuven, in my very early career, uh, I really didn't use anything at all. Uh, and then kind of after having a few clients disappear on me or not pay or whatever, I, you know, kind of convinced myself that, Oh, if I just had better contracts, then that's going to make this not happen. And I kind of went down a rabbit hole of, you know, trying to have really good paperwork. And then I had another client kind of disappear on me and not pay. And it turns out that having that paperwork really didn't make much of a difference. Uh, and, you know, like Eric mentioned, uh, it was not for a, a amount that was enough that, you know, it really even made sense to talk to a lawyer about trying to go after that money. Uh, and so I've kind of gotten back to just trying to have build a good relationship of trust with the client. Um, and then also, you know, I basically at this work at this point do everything uh, paid up front, which you know, is really the ultimate protection against not getting paid. But then I do let clients know that, you know, I am going to have a generous refund policy if they think that I haven't conducted myself professionally and that kind of thing. Right. Right. So like, I mean, I guess, look, when I'm doing project work with people, then I have a contract. Otherwise, I need to send one to someone. Okay. <laughs> I'll do that after the show. <laughs> no, someone wanted to see like what's my draft contract and it's super, like super ridiculously short. It's like a page and a half of large text basically saying, we do the work, you pay us, you own the work, let's, let, let's do this. Um, and like I kept it as ridiculously short as possible, which I'm sure like is missing some things. But in any event, um, but like when I'm doing training, I don't typically need a contract because it's sort of more obvious these days and we're all agreed on it. Um, and also here's another term for people to know, which is PO or purchase order. And almost every company of any reasonable size will do what they call issue a purchase order. 
And you can treat, I think, in fact, laws at certain places treat POs as contracts, meaning you are entitled to get the money. Um, my only real use for these POs is that when I send an invoice or when I send a receipt for payment, I reference which PO number it is. And so the accounting people will know, ah, yes, we're paying for one, two, three, four, five. All right. Just allows them to sort of match things up in their accounting system. So because trainees typically done with POs, those are sort of in lieu of contracts most of the time. Again, not all the time. Uh, two of my clients actually had me sign contracts um, to even just like go in and do stuff with them. But I'm going to echo what, what Jeremy said also, which is I have actually had a few clients not pay, sometimes with contracts and sometimes without the contracts. And the contract, like it made me feel better up front. I mean, I've got someone now who, who owes me money for work that I did a year ago, and it's infuriating to me. But the expense of going after him and his company, even though in Israel the loser pays the legal fees, the winner's legal fees, so that's like a nice thing. But do I really want to put out that much money to go after them and hopefully within a few years see what will effectively be a few thousand dollars? No, no, I don't. And so – even with that contract that I spent lots of money to have a lawyer go over and on and on, it's not going to happen. Um, which yeah. doesn't mean never use contracts, but it means like they, they are not um, a guarantee that things will work. Yeah. And, and I should say that when I do project fees, you know, a flat fee for building a project for somebody, uh, I do make sure to have a signed document that is basically an agreement of what are, what the scope is going to be. Uh, and that, I guess that's generally kind of what goes into a statement of work type of document. Um, but I really often don't mess with all of the statement of work boilerplate. It's just a, you know, bulleted list of here are the, here are the capabilities that this software is going to have when it's delivered. Um, and, you know, to, a to a reasonable degree of specificity. It doesn't get, you know, it's not usually going to include screen mock-ups and that kind of thing. It's just going to describe the the high-level functionality, uh, but to a specific enough degree that the client and I can talk through it and everybody understand what it is that we're agreeing is going to be included in the flat fee. Uh, and that's just useful for maintaining scope over the course of that project so that when they come with some new idea that wasn't covered in the original scope, we have something to look at and we can say, nope, that's not in here. We can maybe look at that as a phase two. Or if you want to take something out that we already had in phase one and replace it with this new thing, we can do that. That sort of thing is very important to me still as kind of maintaining that trust with the client because you've got a written record of what was agreed to and you're not relying on both of you remembering things the same way. Yeah, so to build on that, I think that that's a hugely important point because I try to avoid contracts, but I don't try to avoid proposals. I think that's very important. So historically over the last, I don't know, three, four years, most of the work I've done has been kind of pure consulting that um, – you know, spans anywhere from like two weeks to maybe at most two months. And then I'm doing work for this content agency that I run. Um, and in all cases, 
it's important to agree to what's going to be delivered, but that doesn't require a legally binding arrangement. So I kind of separate these ideas. Like contract is sort of um, almost providing for remediation in the event of a lawsuit, who owes who what. Whereas coming up with a proposal is, is like conceptual agreement on what you're going to do in exchange for money. And I think that's hugely important and hugely valuable, but it doesn't need to be legally binding. The idea there is the trust relationship. I'm going to deliver you these five things and you're going to pay me in exchange for it. And so it's almost like you can both, you and the client look back um, at the end of things and say, you know, was all this delivered? And we can agree when we're done here. Um, so I almost always do proposals, if not always, uh, but I only kind of do contracts if a client really wants it. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I tend, again, for, for, for courses, I don't need to really have many, much in the way of proposals, but for project work, which I still do some of, um, there I'm still doing, yeah, proposals. And I try, look, it's not always possible to be super, super specific, especially if it's an open-ended, like I was just talking to someone yesterday who wants a payment system for his web application. And so we we talked about what's involved and we sort of have a good sense of it, but we know they're going to be bumps and we know they're going to be surprises and we know it's like a medium to long-term project. Um, and so there we can see, sort of keep it more open-ended, but the proposal needs to address that and needs to say, we know that we're going to have to negotiate A to B and C so that everyone's sort of on the same page. And then we can have like, you know, the short, the short contract. Yeah. And I deal with those sort of situations quite frequently and often you know if the scope isn't nailed down to the point that i can do a flat project fee with confidence then i fall back to okay you can pay me a weekly rate and as long as you you know you pay me for next week and then i work all the next week and then if you want me to work the week after that pay me again and i'll work the week after that and you know it's kind of open ended on their call as to when things are finished or done uh and that can you know that removes all of the the risk of trying to estimate a large thing that hasn't really been well defined yet right right i mean that's what's gonna happen with this project basically i'm gonna give him a, a, a weekly quote i guess i've never i still haven't ever done the pay in advance thing um, maybe I should actually, I guess I did once and it really saved us. So maybe I should do it in this case also, <laughs> given that lesson that I learned. Um, but generally, yeah, like with these sorts of open-ended things and it comes down to trust, right? At the end of the day, they're going to pay us, you know, we're, we're going to work for a week and if things are great and, and yeah, the company I'm talking about here is like a bunch of software people. So they actually know what's reasonable to expect in a certain amount of time, um, you know, what's involved with software development. They don't have these pie in the sky ideas about what's going on. Yep. Um, so, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that it, that's a, you know, an important distinction. And I would encourage people to, you know, to the extent possible, try to work with companies and clients who aren't on their first rodeo because you really have to do a lot of, uh, education just about how these things work. Uh, and that can be tough, especially when people don't really want to understand how they work. They just want their, you know, their ideal software project that they have in their mind's eye to come out the other end for super cheap. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, kind of a tangent. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. 
So when a client comes to you with their MSA or their statement of work, um, how much do you expect? How, how much? How do you want to change it? How much can you actually change it? Um, I can answer that for me. <clears throat> so, in, in kind of the most extreme case of our content agency, hit subscribe. This is almost, it's a productized service. So we're delivering blog posts and you can think of them as products almost. And so with a lot of clients, all we do is kind of write up, you know, this is how many blog posts we're going to deliver, et cetera. And a lot of companies regard that as almost like a credit card swipe. So they don't really look um, for contracts necessarily. Uh, the reason I'm mentioning it in this context is that a few of them do, and a few of them just have a process. And it's especially true if they kind of regard this as like, instead of us delivering blog posts that we're delivering like writing labor, they will come with a master services agreement that is often um, completely inappropriate. Um, mm -hmm. Like I'm trying to think of some examples um, wh where it'll talk about like that our writers uh, who are all doing this as a side hustle, like aren't allowed to work for anybody else during the course of the contract or like that we all have to come and do like uh, drug screenings or something. Um, so in the context of hit subscribe, we almost always mark up MSAs heavily and come back. And I have been pleasantly surprised at how receptive clients are to that. Um, if you're kind of coming in as a contractor, along with a bunch of other contractors, I imagine that you would have a lot less wiggle room. But I think my message to anybody listening is based on my experience, you would be surprised at how flexible um, clients will be about you marking that sort of thing up. Yeah, I've had the same experience um, and, uh, you know, the same experience with people asking for really, really onerous stuff in a master services agreement. And in fact, I, I think one time somebody basically presented me with an employment contract that they had changed the heading <laughs> on to say master services agreement because it, it had stuff like, you know, we own every bit of intellectual property that you develop or work on during the term of your employment and, you know, a bunch of stuff like that. That one, I think I had asked for so many changes that finally they were like, uh, do you just have a normal MSA that you work with? Can we just use yours? <laughs> I said, yeah, let's do that. That would be way better. Uh, <laughs> so I, like for me, um, that, that reminded me of a, something I wanted to mention too, which is whether you have a lawyer do it, which obviously is the safest course of action, or you do it yourself, which is generally what I do. I'm scanning through that document, number one, to look for, is there anything it's saying that I will be in, like, ipso facto violation of on day one? Uh, because that's a deal breaker. Then I would come back pretty easily to the client and say, I can't possibly sign this as is because it forbids something that's part of our service delivery. So that's a big thing to look for. Is there anything that isn't just onerous but that, like, uh, you can't help but violate because that is something that you will find uh, when presented with like a boilerplate one. Yeah, I mean, I guess just recently I've been dealing with this very large company that sent me an MSA that I think it was probably like 30 or 40 pages long. And it was so ridiculous. And at a certain point I realized, okay, this is their very generic MSA um, that they give to all contracts who are going to be doing any work with them. And more or less two-thirds of it dealt with ensuring that when I write software that the company will be using like and incorporating to their products, that I won't mess with it. And that when I have access to their employee database, I won't abuse it. 
and when I have access to their networks, I won't abuse it. And like, I'm going to come in with my own computer and I'm going to do a course. So basically <laughs> none of this was relevant. Um, and so there were things I had not marked up and I marked up a whole bunch of them. Uh, like I wanted it to be payment net plus 30 instead of net plus 60. Um, I wanted to have a cancellation fee on the course if it was canceled, like within two weeks or a month. Um, and a, a variety of other things. Everything I suggested was basically rejected um, with a caveat of, well, we could check with upper management and make an exception here. I said, you know, it's just not worth it. Like I'm already bugging them enough with a few other things. Um, amusingly, the two things that they actually did cave on or, or, or negotiate, you know, <laughs> allow me to negotiate on one of them uh, was that I wanted to be able to use their name um, on my website saying, yes, I have, uh, you know, I've worked with them. I've done courses with them. And the original MSA said under no circumstances are you allowed to tell anyone you worked with us and not, not use our name, not use our logo. So, um, I said, like, I changed that to read. Yes, I can. Like, like I can use your name on my website. And they came back with, of course, better legalese than I can come up with effectively saying, or saying you can use our name so long as it's no bigger like like and not more prominent than any other name on your site which actually that's that's fine now of course i didn't get permission for most of the other companies on my site to use their name so i'm glad that i'm starting with this one um if you're listening for any of those companies of course i just lied um <laughs> so so like they actually were okay in that the other thing which was really a huge bone of contention was the insurance um, and here I'm going to go to a, like a, a slight tangent, but I, I actually, maybe I'll ask you guys, do you guys have, I can't even remember what it's called. It's like G something, something, something insurance for your businesses, general liability, general, like there's, there's some term acronym that's used in the U S for insurance. Oh. That's currently extremely, extremely common for consulting companies to have general. Anyway, you could tell how how well-versed I am in this. Basically, that insurance does not exist in Israel. Like, it is impossible at any price whatsoever to purchase it. And so, um, and you can only get insurance in the jurisdiction where you're incorporated. So basically, they said, you must get this insurance. And I got something that's sort of kind of almost maybe if you squint at it the right way, that kind of insurance, but for a much lower amount. They wanted me to get, I think it was like $5 million in liability, which I think would cover them if I came in with a pickaxe and hewed to death most of their employees and their servers before people were able to drag me out from their from their offices. And um, and if you've ever seen me, like the odds of me being able to do that to anyone or any server are basically nil. So like <laughs> we reduced the, the amount on that and they they reduced the amount in the in the contract, much to my great surprise. Um, that said, I said to them, so I don't really have the insurance you want. Can we include my insurance certificate, like my policy certificate in our MSA. So we all agree that this is okay. And their lawyer said, no, we won't allow you to include that because that would be uh, admitting that your insurance is okay. And I wrote back and said, um, okay, I just want to make sure here, like if I come and give a course at your company, you're not going to turn around and say, we're not paying you because you don't have the right insurance. I said, if, if that's not going to happen, I'm totally good to go. To which the lawyer said, okay, great doing business with you, which is, I think, lawyer, legalese for 
if I say anything, then I'm liable. So I'm not going to say anything and let's just move on. <laughs> so so those are, those are the only instances in which I've really had any sort of – like that they've allowed me to change things. Otherwise, I was actually surprised by how hard-nosed they were about keeping the contract as it is. I just decided, you know what, fine. I'm not going to worry about too much. Yeah, and I, you know, I bet some of that stuff like the payment terms is probably as much just – Hey, this is how our process works, and it's a huge pain in our ass to get anything out any faster. And you're not worth it to us, you know, for us to do that. Um, when it comes to payment terms, at least in my experience, even if you got them to mark up the payment terms on a contract, they might well still just pay you next <laughs> sixty anyway. Yeah. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, so I had a client a few uh, years ago. Oh, sorry. Uh, the insurance, um, are you talking about errors and omissions coverage or is it something so there else? Were, there were a bunch of different kinds of insurance that they wanted. Let me like look up, but like, I don't think it was just errors and omissions. It was, there was something else that was like very specifically what they wanted. And it was basically, I, I, I mean, I asked my insurance agent here in Israel and he was like, Oh yes, I can get that for you. And a week later comes back and says, actually that is not available at all. Too bad. <laughs> um, and then I basically searched around. And I found this like guy who had a lot of years of experience in the insurance business and said, okay, I know what they want. That is not available. Um, how do you say this? Like originally this British guy, um, and I might be flipping it, but he said, we will give them lamb and make it look like mutton. Or it could be like, we'll give them mutton and make it look like lamb. And basically like, he knew how to make the Israeli almost kind of sort of insurance look like what they wanted. Um, and it seems to have worked. Like he said, unless they have a real insurance expert, look at it. And, he's, and it could be they just didn't care either. Like, as I told this guy, the greatest danger that I pose to them is that I will bore them to death during my training. Like, <laughs> like, otherwise there's like really, truly, I, I'm not going to like do anything. There is with coming on site. I've had to deal with this once or twice at a really major institution I forget what it amounts to, but it's like a coverage for whatever might happen to you while you're walking around their halls. You slip on a banana peel and crack your head. They want your insurance to take care of that and not theirs or something like that. So I can actually remember briefly getting policies like that for the sake of an engagement because it wasn't very expensive and then just canceling them when I was done. Oh, here I found it. It's commercial, commercial general liability insurance. Oh, so apparently gotcha. that's like that's like the, the standard, and I think it covers what you're talking about, among other things. And really, friends of mine in the U.S. so that they get it for like five, six hundred dollars for a year. Um, and my insurance agent actually came back after saying it was impossible. He said, "Wait, I actually did some more research. I found it, and it'll only cost you like seven thousand dollars a year." <laughs> um, Ouch! Wow. I said, "Right." And I actually like so the specialized insurance agent I found found it for me for half of that. So I'm basically paying like, you know, six times what Americans do for this for something that, I mean, I'm convinced just the company's insurance requires that their contractors get it and not much more than that. Yeah. Um, they also actually required that I get auto insurance. And hmm. um, I, I said to them, look, like, first of all, I have auto insurance here in Israel. And second of all, I do not intend to rent a car or drive. Uh, I even saw where their offices were. I usually try to get a hotel walking distance or close by. 
And so they, they actually, that's right, they, they agreed to take that stipulation away from the MSA um, unless having a car is necessary for my work, which I find impossible to imagine, but fine. <laughs> Um, My goodness! Look, I know that. Uh, I mean, I, I know that like Jonathan Stark has been extremely uh, successful at getting these large companies to change their payment terms, where he gets you know everything paid up front. So it is possible hmm. to do, mm -hmm. and it could be a matter of the amount. It could be a matter of how much you stick to your guns, right? Maybe if I had said this is the only way I work with you, they would have said okay, fine. Right? And maybe just would have taken one more. Would have taken one more message. Uh, but I decided like I, I would just fold. So for me, my experience when it comes to the contract and payment terms, I think you have like it's about the leverage of the services performed. So uh, drawing on my own experience, if you're trying to get them to go from net 60 to net 30 or something, that's almost not worth doing. But if they need something and you're trying to negotiate any form of upfront payment, partial or complete, I think that's a lot more likely because you have the leverage to withhold the service. That's been, like I've had easier time getting upfront payment than I have trying to change the payment terms or specifics of uh, payment after the fact. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, see I, that. I had one client a number of years ago where like I asked them to change the payment terms and they were surprisingly nice about it. They were like, you know, they're a medium sized company, but they said, Oh, well this is like you and your salary. So yeah, we'll pay you net plus 30. Like, you know, I'm not a, a multi-billion dollar company, but it's very, very, very rare in my experience, to find a company that's willing to change things around like that. Most of the time, they just have standard procedures in place. And um, sometimes, I mean, like, if, uh, I mean, I a company that sometimes would, like, not pay me on time or if an invoice hadn't come in on time or the person was out sick, whatever it was, and they said, okay, we'll just pay you on our next payment cycle, and often they do payments twice a month. So it's, like, not even in their hands. They send a notice to the right people. And one of my clients once told me that it takes seven separate people to write off on a payment going out. So, um, wow. I, which, yeah, yeah, like, Yikes. well, I mean, I'm not surprised. So, so like changing the procedure there, I can only imagine like that would take an eighth or a ninth person. Yeah. I think I will say if, when it comes to negotiating payments specifically, whether I, I guess through a contract or anything else, like the closer you move what you're doing, um, whether in practice or in the buyer's mind to the swipe of a credit card, so if, if you're furnishing a roadmap versus you're coming in to do general consulting for an open-ended period of time, furnishing the roadmap, you're a lot probably more likely to be able to negotiate different sorts of payment terms because that starts to look more like a product or a purchase. Um, so if I think of my own career of negotiating contracts, the more it looks productized, the more options you have. At least that's been my experience. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very fair point. So one thing that occurs to me is, because somebody asked me about this not long ago, and I'm curious what you guys think. If you're a newly minted freelancer, you've just left your nine to five job and hung out your shingle. Um, this question I've actually asked recently and in general a lot, like, do you go out and immediately like pay a lawyer to draft a master services agreement, um, like a stock templated one for you, along with maybe a template statement of work or do you just say deal with that when it comes up and you know try to land some clients i'm curious where you guys come down on that i i would say wait 
I would say you really like, I mean, you're going to have enough expenses. You're going to have enough surprises. Um, and, and, and as we've seen, like the odds of you really needing an airtight agreement and paying a lawyer for it are small. I'd say first try to get doing it without. And second of all, like there are people out there. Um, I think Brennan might have agreements. Brennan Dunn. I know that a number of years ago, oh, I'm blanking on his name. Obi um, Fernandez. There was like, Obi Fernandez. There we go. Thank you so much. He had a bunch of agreements. He might even still have them available. Yeah. And it's a few hundred dollars, but it's way cheaper than paying a lawyer to dry it up for mm. you. Yeah, that's that's the basis of the MSA and statement of work that uh, I've used in the past as I bought Obi's bundle. Um, read through everything, made customizations that I thought made sense. Uh, and then I think I had a lawyer do a final review on those to just basically say, you know, I haven't changed things in a dumb way here, have I? Uh, and that was a couple of hundred dollars, I think. And then, you know, I've kind of used just the same thing or a variation of it uh, over time. And the the bundle that Obi sells is pretty nice. It kind of has a lot of things highlighted about Hey, you need to insert your own company name here, or you know, make sure that this phrase reads in a way that makes sense for your business. Um, that kind of stuff. Uh, hmm. That's a smart thing to offer. Um, by the way, I'm in complete agreement. I just didn't like want to poison the well with my opinion, but I would say okay. the same kind of piece of advice: just don't at first, and deal with it as it becomes necessary. Or if you're really building up a serious business and you feel that you're risk profile you're starting to get a little uncomfortable with and hiring a lawyer to do a draft contract and review isn't particularly big expense then maybe go for it i'm trying to think of the point at which i've involved lawyers in the past um i think generally when it comes to uh consulting it's been when i'm faced with a really large contract and simultaneously with um a client MSA or statement of work or whatever that I find concerning in some way, that I believe is the only time I've sprung for attorney review. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't often hire an attorney. Like, I mean, I guess I had a client last year, the guy who still owes me money, but he, but basically <laughs> he wanted to offer me equity in the company and he wanted, like, I was going to be the part-time CTO. And so it, um, like, I ended up hiring a lawyer and paying a fair amount to my lawyer. And what basically cut the negotiation short was that the company I was working with had like, you know, Israel's leading law firm basically working for them and charging them God knows what. And basically the CEO said, listen, let's just like finish this up because I don't have the budget to, to keep having my lawyer go back and forth with yours. But like having someone look over something substantial like that, which at least in theory could really you know, work it to be a lot of money in the end is a good idea. Oh, um, here's something that might be relevant to many of our listeners. So one of the things that I stuck into um, the contract that I use with people is a clause about open source software. So I am admittedly like I've been using open source for a long, long time and I am like the worst, the worst at actually contributing to it. Um, so got, got like, let's call a spade a spade, folks. But um, there are. I mean, I use tons of open source libraries and I'll occasionally like, you know, send a patch. I want to have at least have the, the ability to do that. And so I made sure that in my contract with clients, um, when we're doing project work, 
uh, it explicitly says the client owns the IP. They own the intellectual property. But any changes we make to open source software can be contributed back to that open source library. And mm. no one has ever given me a tiny, even like the tiniest bit of pushback on this um, because they realize, like, what, what do they care? <laughs> We're basically help, helping the library that their business depends on to improve. And I just figure at some point down the line, someone will get upset with me about, you know, taking their supposedly proprietary stuff or the stuff that they've paid me for and contributing back to the community. And this this removes that problem. Yeah, I like um, that. What other caveats? Oh, I'll just I'll actually add to to what we said before in terms of like you don't have to rush to get a lawyer. So in Israel, you can't just like be self-employed. I know in the U.S. you just like say, okay, I'm going to get some income on the side, and then you can put it on your tax return um, to some degree or another. But in Israel, almost no one files a tax return. It's all taken out at source, with very rare exception. Uh, that's right. No April fifteenth rush to like mail your taxes in here in Israel. Ah, ha, ha. Um, but uh, but that means you have to incorporate <laughs> or, or declare yourself as self-employed. So haha on me. So basically, um, when you're starting a business here, you have to go to a lawyer. You have to incorporate. And it's gotten way more streamlined in the 25 years since I incorporated, but it still requires some expenses. And so like, just keep them, <laughs> keep them as low as possible. Keep things as low key as possible because it's how you don't know how long you're going to be in business, right? Hopefully you'll be super successful and super happy. But if not, then what? Right. Then you spent tons of money on a lawyer and then you'll be really upset. Do yeah. you have to retain a lawyer in order to incorporate or would you be able to do that yourself? No, you actually need a lawyer to sign off on the form. Like you can sign up with the various tax authorities, with income tax, uh, national insurance, which is the same as Social Security, more or less. And that value added tax, you can do all that yourself. No one does. Everyone has a an accountant do it for them. Um, and so you need to hire an accountant anyway to start up your company and sign off on things. And you also need to hire a lawyer to sign off on things. So you already like just just incorporating. You need to pay them. And it's not that much. It's probably like a few thousand dollars at most. But, you know, <laughs> if you haven't earned any income yet, yeah. then that's that's not negligible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's so in the US, you can do all of that yourself. And I think depending on the state, incorporating isn't all that expensive. Like I have corporations in Michigan or LLCs, and those are, oh goodness, it was like $50 to incorporate if I did it all myself. So that's a pretty significant difference. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it might have, it, it might only be like $1,000 or so nowadays, but I'm guessing that's like roughly the ballpark. And yeah, there, there are definitely things that you need to have. Like, I guess also when I opened a bank account, I needed to have a lawyer sign off on the forms. Like, it's sort—it's not exactly like notarizing, but just sort of like, for whatever reason, lawyers are considered to be official officials for that sort of thing. So I asked a friend of mine who's a lawyer to just sign off on it, and she was fine and did it for free. Nowadays, like, now that I'm a little more established, maybe I'd actually pay someone. But like, it was for literally five, 10 minutes of signatures on, on papers that no one cared about, except the bank. <laughs> yeah, so all this uh, makes me realize that we should mention that in addition to none of us being lawyers, we also cannot speak to the particulars of any jurisdiction other than our own. And so as the listener, you should make sure that you're aware of customs, traditions, and laws of how businesses are operated wherever you happen to be and make sure that if you need to be incorporated to do business that you are and that the paperwork that you you know, 
engage with with your clients uh, is up to snuff for the jurisdiction that you happen to be in. And there are all sorts of weird things in every jurisdiction. So when I incorporated in Israel in 95, 96, you needed to have two shareholders in the company because every company has shareholders. And so it was like a friend of mine and me. And then when I got married, my wife got like she bought the one share from this friend. <laughs> fine. Um, and you also need to state what you your business would do. And so I, th- I think I listed like, you know, programming and administration and consulting. All right. You know, no, no great shakes. No big surprise there. Fast forward approximately like 15 years. And my wife, who's a curator at an art gallery. So she got a gig. Like she was working through our company. Like we have a company. Why not use it? So the company would like invoice the museum where she was working as a curator and they would pay her as a contractor. Sounds great. Well, before she could start this museum, which is a bunch of like idiots anyway, um, (laughs) she's no longer working there. And believe me, like they really are. Anyway, so like their lawyer contacted us and asked to see the incorporation papers for our company. So we sent them to her and she said, oh, no, 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 no. Your wife will be working in curating and you are a consulting company with computers. You need to change the incorporation papers so that it will reflect what we're working on. I said, what if we like (laughs) changing it means like taking out an ad in two national newspapers and filing something with the justice ministry. Like this was not just like a minor thing. It cost us quite a bit. And, And I said, okay, what should we change it to? And she said, well, you have to change it to like, you know, consulting and programming and system administration and curating. I said, what if we say all legal business? And she said, no, that's not enough. You have to say all legal business and curating, as if curating is like some (laughs) illegal activity. (laughs) Anyway, she finally did relent on that, but we actually did need to change the company's incorporation papers. And you can go look up my company in the Israeli Justice Ministry to this very day and find that we are now allowed to do anything you want as long as it's legal. So no drug dealing for me, strangely. (laughs) But like – Anyway, these, like they've gotten rid of that stipulation. Now all companies can do anything legal, which makes her whole position even more preposterous, but fine. Um, so, yeah, bottom line is every jurisdiction will give you all sorts of crazy weirdnesses. Um, I think anything else we can maybe uh, – any, any other advice and suggestions we can offer people here on this topic? Not, I can't think of anything. Oh, oh, one last thing. The contract will say – because every contract basically says this is what each party will do and this is what each party will get. Like these are the responsibilities. These are the benefits. And like this is how you get out of it. This is what happens when things go wrong. Now, obviously, we don't want things to go wrong. But one semi-sneaky thing that people will do is choose their favorite jurisdiction for the laws to be interpreted. Mm. So like – if you are signing a contract with a company in another country, they are likely going to say that the jurisdiction is their country. And <laughs> some countries' legal systems are very uh, just <laughs> and impartial. Others, not so much. Also, some are speedier, some are more expensive, right? So a number of years ago, this is not exactly our domain here, but a number of years ago, there were some um, like vegetarian activists who said that something like McDonald's was terrible for animals and for the environment and so forth. And in, in the British legal system, apparently it's very easy to sue for libel. 
And so McDonald's actually sued these people for libel. It turned into this amazing circus. Like you should look up this court case because it was amazing what these what these like non-lawyers were able to do. And like they had this multi-billion co- dollar corporation at their beck and calls. Quite astonishing. But basically, I, the reason McDonald's was able to sue them and doesn't sue people in the U.S. is just different jurisdictions. They have different rules and they were able to do it in England. So you should find out what the jurisdiction is because it might seriously affect what they can and cannot sue you for or vice versa, what you can and cannot sue them for. All right. And with that happy note, they will move on to uh, to picks. Do you run your own freelance business or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side? Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Eric, you got anything for us? I do. I've been having some trouble in Chrome with Adblock. I forget exactly what, but I went Googling a little bit and found this plugin called uBlock Origin, which um, I don't yet know all of what it's capable of, but it's got a lower memory footprint. It seems to do a better job of actually blocking stuff. And I don't. there's this like fair advertising. I don't really understand it, but it's... Um, it covers more things in terms of what it blocks and what it lets you customize. So early returns on that have been great. I've been enjoying it. And then for a second pick, I've been talking about my content agency. So I'll just pick our site there and basically say, if you're looking for, like if you're a dev tools company and you're looking for uh, blog content, white papers, that sort of thing, we can absolutely help with that. Um, and we're looking to do a little bit of expansion in the new year. So if you think you're, um, inclined to need something like that, please feel free to reach out. Okay, excellent. Jeremy, what you got for us this week? I will pick the aforementioned OB's document templates, which is, which are found at msabundle.com. Uh, and that is a place where you can find a master services agreement, statement of work, a retainer services agreement, uh, a couple of other documents that are commonly needed for both uh, consultants and kind of new companies. Um, so yeah, that's all I got this week. Excellent. So I've got a book pick, Bad Blood. So this is one of the best books I've read in a while. Basically, um, I'm trying to remember exactly what the, um, oh, what was the company called? Of course, I have to, uh, blank on it. Uh, what was it called? Oh, God, I read the whole book and I really enjoyed it. Oh, Theranos. Theranos, that's right. So basically, um, Theranos was this company that promised this amazing thing, which was you could like get a tiny drop of blood from your finger and it would be able to run all sorts of incredible blood tests. Um, sounds like a great startup, right? I'm telling you, it's like if you didn't know it was true, you would think it was all made up. 
it was the it's the craziest story of like Silicon Valley startup paranoia pulling the wool over people's eyes, incredible fraud. I strongly, strongly recommend this book. It is so much fun to read because you cannot believe so many people are so horrible and so stupid at the same time. Although typically not the same people being horrible and stupid. Not always. Um, <laughs> anyway, so Bad, Bad Blood by John Carreru, I believe it's pronounced, although I might be wrong on that. And uh, he's a Wall Street Journal reporter who basically broke the story and then turned it into this book. I've, I've actually heard it's going to be turned into a movie. And I think people will not believe that it's real. It is truly amazing, like how much money this company was able to raise on literally zero proof that anything it did worked in any way, shape or form. Um, and my, my 15 year old is reading it. And I mean, she's like, you know, she's into Python and, and being entrepreneur and everything. So like, this is just up her alley. But she's like, <laughs> oh my God, what an amazing book. So if she likes it, I like it. Wow. Because like, she's usually into like vampires. I'm usually into nonfiction, like like history. So if, if she and I can both like the same book, some must be something good about it. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks guys, once again, for a fantastic discussion. Thanks to all of you in podcast land for listening to us. And we will be back next week on The Freelancer Show. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.